Good morning, church. Is that loud for you or just for me? I sound so powerful. Like the Wizard of Oz. We are... We are continuing this morning, as Joe mentioned, our series in the book of Acts called Unleashed to Change the World. This morning we are finishing chapter two, and as I looked at this during the week, I thought, oh, this is great. We've had a couple weeks where we took this huge chunk of scripture and tried to condense it down for you, and then this week we have five verses, which is really fun because it means we can kind of dig in a little bit this week and look at, as Luke summarizes, where we have been so far in the book of Acts. But um, there's also a challenge that comes in that, in that as we start to really dig into it, we want to make sure that we keep the main thing the main thing. We want to make sure we maintain our focus as we go through this passage. So it helps that it's a summary. We're going to break it down a little bit. But if you haven't been with us for the last few weeks, let me just remind you where we've been so that you're up to speed. You can turn in your Bible now to Acts chapter 2 if you want to. If you don't have a Bible this morning, you're welcome to um, look with a neighbor. We have some here in the aisles. If you don't have a Bible and you want one, if you raise your hand, we will pass one down to you and you can take it home. That's our gift to you. Um, Or you're welcome to just look at the person next to you, but you can turn there. We're going to be right at the end of the chapter of chapter 2, but let me just tell you where we've been. If you recall, we have summarized the book of Acts by saying that the book of Acts is about a group of ordinary people equipped with this irresistible message doing extraordinary things through the power of the Holy Spirit. That's kind of how we're summarizing the whole book, and we're going to spend a lot of time here, but over and over you're going to see that theme come up. And at the beginning of the book, Jesus kind of in his final charge to his followers before he left them, he said, you guys are going to want to hang out here for a while in Jerusalem because I'm going to send a helper. I'm going to send the promise of the Father. I'm going to send the Holy Spirit. And the Spirit will come. And when that happens, it is this supernatural event. We talked about it a couple weeks ago. There's like rushing wind and tongues of fire, and it's very bizarre. And then the uh, followers of Jesus come out of this room And they are proclaiming the mighty works of God, and everybody is hearing them in their own language, in their own dialect. Everyone can hear clearly what they're saying. And all of the people that are witnessing this are looking around at each other saying, man, this is super weird. That's a loose paraphrase of what they said. They're like, what is going on here? And so last week, Peter explained, this is what's going on. This is not just a bizarre occurrence. This is an act of God. This means something significant. This means that the Spirit has come. This means that the Messiah was here. This means that you missed that event, but there's good news in that message. Even though you missed Jesus, in fact, he puts a little finer point on that. He doesn't say you missed him. He says you killed him. Even though you killed him, there is good news that is offered in this because he still offers forgiveness and restoration with God. In spite of all of that, He still offers that. And if you remember the response of the people, it says at the end of that passage where we were last week, right before we pick up this week, verse 41 of chapter 2, so those who received his word were baptized and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. 3,000 people repent, are baptized, and become a part of the church. Now, maybe that's just because of my job, but I've been thinking about what that would look like. 
Do you remember how many people were in the church to begin with? How many people actually came out of that room? About 120. 120. And 3,000 people just came to faith, which means the church just went from 120 people, not that much less than we have in the room right now, to 3,120 people. So my question is, what would we do if that happened today? What would we do if 3,000 people came to faith? And I'm thinking, I don't just mean 3,000 people came in the room. I mean 3,000 people came in, were confronted with the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, said, I want to repent, I want to be baptized, I want to follow Jesus, I want to give my life to him. That's different than just showing up at church. What would we do? Well, we'd need to hire some people. We need to start some programs. We need to buy a facility. We need to change our budget. We need to, I mean, I'm starting to think about, the, this is a logistical nightmare. <laughs> so I want to look at this this morning and say, what did they do? And did they see it that way? Maybe the way that we would view that? Like, oh man, this is a huge problem. I mean, we'd be excited, but it'd come with all this other stuff. Well, what did they do and what can we learn from their response? So before we start in this passage this morning, let me just pray for us, and then we'll look at the end of Acts chapter 2. Would you pray with me? Lord, we are excited to open your word, and yet every time we do that, there is weight there. And so we would just pray, Father, that you would speak to us through your word this morning, that we would hear your words, that you would open our hearts and expose those areas that you want to speak into this morning, and that through your spirit, you would do a work in our church family. We thank you for your word. We thank you for being here with us this morning. We are so excited to have this place to come and worship you. In your name we pray. Amen. So Acts 2, starting in verse 42, is where we are. Acts 2.42 is a pretty familiar passage if you're familiar with Acts or if you're familiar with our church. A couple times a year, we have what we call an Acts 2.42 service where we bring everyone together, all the campuses, all the services, so that everyone can be together as a church family. So you probably have some idea of what this passage is about, but let me just read these five verses to you this morning all at once, and you're going to get an idea of where we're going this morning. Acts 2, starting in verse 42. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common, and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God, and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number, day by day, those who were being saved. It's a church of 3,120 people, and it's growing. And this is a summary that Luke is giving us of what it looked like after this happened. And at first glance, I think this is pretty straightforward, what's going on here. But I also think this is a great model for us. It's a great description of what it looked like, but it's also a great model for us to follow. When I read this passage, I think, this is the church. This is the church. This is what it's supposed to look like. And perhaps for us this morning, it'd be helpful for us to break this down. And I think maybe the easiest way to do that is just look at Acts 2.42. He mentions four things specifically in that verse. 
they devoted themselves to these things, the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and the prayers. When we look at this, we see a group of believers whose whole experience of church is based on this common experience. That common experience is the gospel. It is their salvation. And so we see kind of three things when we look at them. We see that the gospel is central to their community. It is at the center. It's the thing that binds them together, and it's the thing that they're focused on. The second thing we see that the gospel is what brings them together. It's what unifies them. And the last thing we see in here is that the gospel attracts those who are outside of their fellowship. The people that are outside of the church, as we call it, the early church, are attracted by what they're seeing happen in the life of the early church. So the first thing, we would say the gospel is central to their community. Where do we see that? The first thing they do with all of these new believers is they disciple them. It says they're devoted to the teaching of the apostles. They're going to say, hey, come here and let us tell you what it looks like to follow Jesus. That's the first thing that they do. This is not, let me tell you what it was like to follow Jesus. This is not a past tense thing. This is, tell me, let me tell you what it's like to follow Jesus right now. This is an active thing. What does it mean to devote yourself to something? What does it mean to devote? They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. This looks like a significant investment. This means I'm willing to give my time and my energy to it. Probably the easiest way to say it is they don't just learn about it together. They actually do it. The passage makes that very clear. Francis Chan has a great way of describing this. He says, in the church, we have this, um, this way of learning things without doing them that wouldn't really fly anywhere else. So he said it's like if, if he were to go to his daughter and say, Rachel, clean your room. And she were to go away and come back and say, Dad, I memorized what you said. You said, Rachel, clean your room. In fact, I can say it in Greek. <laughs> He's like, that's, that's not what I'm looking for. Or for her to come back and say, Dad, a group of my friends and I are going to get together and we're going to talk about what it would look like if I cleaned my room. He's like, no, just clean your room. That's what I want you to do. And we look at Scripture, a lot of times in the church or as believers, we read it and we say, man, that's really good. I'm glad I know that. But we don't do anything different. And what we see in the life of the early church is they're not just learning these things, they are devoted to them. So when the apostles teach them something, they do it. And we see that throughout this passage. So they've devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, but what are the apostles' teaching? What are they telling them about? Well, we can look through the book of Acts and we can see pretty clearly what they're teaching, but it won't surprise you. They're teaching them about Jesus. First, they're teaching them about Jesus as their Savior. They said, hey guys, the good news is even though you missed it when Jesus was here, repentance is still available to you. Forgiveness for your sin is still accessible to you. That Jesus still offers this to you. Jesus is your Savior, and even though you missed it in the moment, it's not too late. They're teaching them about the life and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. They're teaching them all that that implies for them, and it implies a lot for them. That salvation is available to them that the wrath of God that was directed at them because of their sin has been redirected onto Jesus because of his sacrifice on the cross and that then they've been absolved of that sin before God and that by putting their trust in Jesus Christ, they can stand before God without blame. 
which is amazing, by the way. Because of the cross, they're saved by Jesus. That's what the disciples are teaching them. The disciples are teaching them about Jesus and who he was. You have to remember that these are men who walked with Jesus and watched his whole ministry, and so they're able to tell them what he was like and what he said, and they're telling them everything that he did and everything that he taught. Remember how Luke starts the book of Acts. He says, hey, you remember, Theophilus, in the book of Luke, I told you everything that Jesus began to do and teach in the beginning of his ministry, and now you're going to see his ministry picked up, and other people are going to run with it, ordinary people, but equipped with an extraordinary God and an extraordinary message. He's teaching, the apostles are teaching them about Jesus as the Messiah. Remember, these are 3,000 devout Jews who have been waiting for and praying for a Messiah, and then the Messiah came and they totally missed it. And so they're showing them how Jesus fulfills all the prophecy of the Old Testament that they would know and point to him and say, it's clear that he's the Messiah, so that they can teach others and point to Jesus as well. And finally, they're teaching them about what it looks like to live a spirit-empowered life. If you just back up a few verses in Acts chapter 2 to verse 38, it said, And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins. That's the gospel. That's the good news. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Part of this experience is being empowered by the Holy Spirit, the same Holy Spirit that we see in Romans, had the power to raise Jesus from the dead is in you. And they're teaching about what that means and what it looks like. So the first thing we see here is that the gospel is central to their community. It's at the core. They've devoted themselves to the teaching of the apostles, and the apostles are teaching them about Jesus. The second thing is that the gospel unifies their community and brings them together. That first verse, 42, says they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, and what else? And fellowship, and the breaking of bread, and to the prayers. So let's just look at those things together. Fellowship, breaking of bread, and prayer. If you would look with me at verse 44, I know I'm skipping one. I'm doing that on purpose. It says, and, and, and all who believed were together and had all things in common. They have, we've talked about this, this family identity through this shared experience. They have experienced something together, that is they've experienced salvation together. And so they have this this commonality, this family resemblance, the joy of being rescued. And it continues in verse 45, and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And some of you are like, "Uh uh-oh. This sounds like, not only does this sound like a difficult application, this sounds like communism. Because I was nervous when you said they had all things in common, but I didn't really know what that meant. But this is very clear. I know what this means, and this looks like communist Russia. And I would just say, this is not communism. This is genuine Christian community. But for those of us, like me, who grew up in or lived through the Cold War, you kind of think you have that mentality. If you grew up watching movies like Rocky IV... And you think about the U.S. versus Russia, but thankfully, Rocky resolved our differences <laughs> at the end of Rocky Four. I don't know if you remember this. Just give me a second here. If you remember the end of Rocky Four, he fights in Mother Russia. He fights Drago, the great champion of Russia, and he beats him 
And he gives this incredibly eloquent speech at the end to the crowd that's there. Some of you are laughing because you know the eloquent speech. It goes like this. If you can change and I can change, everybody can change. (laughs) And the Cold War is over. It was the end of the Cold War. So we don't need to worry about communism anymore. Thank you, Rocky. But this isn't communism anyway, so that was completely unnecessary. (laughs) This does not imply that 3,000 people came together, they sold everything they had, they made a big pile of money, and they just lived off of it together. How do we know that that's not true? If we read the verse, it says they were selling their possessions and belongings, oh no, and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. What this, the connotation here is sacrificial giving. We've come together as a family, and I see a family member in need, and so I give up something of my own so that they can have what they need to have. It's not a commune mentality. It's a family mentality. It's a community mentality. 1 John 3 says this, By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us. So he starts with the gospel. We're seeing a theme here. And we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and truth. He's saying, "Don't, don't talk about it, just do it. And we see the early church doing that, selling, sacrificing for the family of God. How do we know that Jesus was central to the teaching of the apostles for the early church? Because the early church looked like Jesus. The early church loved like Jesus. And then verse 46 says this, continues, And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts. Day by day, there is a consistency to their relationship. It doesn't mean that every day all 3,120 people were together. It means that every day some of those people were together, that that was a family, and they spent time together, and that was part of what it looked like to be together. And then it uses this word together, and he's used this word already. When we see the word together, we think they're all in the same place. We are together right now. But if you were to translate the original word that's used here, together means something much more significant than that. We would actually translate it as unanimous. And they were unanimous. Meaning they're of one mind, all of them. That's a lot of people. We have a little trouble comprehending that. And I think that's because when we think of being in unity, when we think of having unity, I think, well, that means everyone thinks like I do and agrees with me. And then we have unity. Because unity for us is very me-focused. The difference here is that unity is Jesus-focused. They're all looking at Jesus, and they have unity in that. And they look around, and everyone is of the same mind because everyone has the same focus. Jesus is central to their community. It's what brings them together. It's what they have in common. So we talk about fellowship. They talk about the breaking of bread. When we hear the term breaking of bread in church, we think of communion, or we think of donuts, if you're part of our church. Well, what does he mean? Because he says they're breaking bread in their homes, 
They're meeting together at church. Does he mean communion or does he mean just having meals together? What does he mean? And I would just say yes. He means celebrating the Lord's Supper together. He means sharing meals together. And he means when you're sharing a meal together, why don't you celebrate Jesus? Because it's what you have in common. When they eat together, they point to Jesus. Whether they're formally celebrating the Lord's Supper or whether they're just coming together for a meal. This really convicts me. Because if I were to think of what I pray before I eat, how often do I get together with my family or even a group of friends and pray before a meal and never think, I mean, I'll thank Jesus for a great day, I'll thank him for the great food, I'll thank him for my friends, and never once think, oh, thanks for dying for me and absolving me of my sin before the Father. But that's what this is talking about. When we come together as believers, we remember Jesus. And it's something that we do regularly and we invite each other into our homes to share a meal. And then he says prayer. In the Jewish tradition, it would be, um, they would set aside three times a day to pray. And so if we were looking at that now, we would say it looks to us like these are believers that are continuing that same habit. It looks like these are believers that are continuing in that same pattern But the focus of their prayers have changed because if you're a devout Jew and the Messiah hasn't come, what are you going to be praying for? The Messiah. If if the Messiah has come, doesn't that fundamentally change the way you pray? Now it's all about praise God, the Messiah has come and we've been rescued. And then if we look through the book of Acts, we can see what the focus of their prayers are together. It's for boldness in proclaiming the gospel and praising God for what he's done. So they're devoted to teaching Because the gospel is central to their community. They're devoted to fellowship and breaking of bread and the prayers because the gospel is central to what makes them a community. It's what binds them together. The last thing we said was that the gospel attracts those who are outside of their community. We skipped a couple of verses in here on purpose. There's this interesting pattern in these five verses. Luke kind of summarizes what the early church looks like and then he tells us, what impact that has, or who notices. And then he goes into more detail about what the early church looks like, and then he tells us what impact that has. So let me help you see that here. Verse 42, we saw that. They devoted themselves, teaching, fellowship, breaking of bread, and prayers. Verse 43, and awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. Every soul does not mean every soul in the church. It means Everyone, everyone is seeing this happen. How do we know this? Well, one, Acts tells us a lot about it, and we see who's seeing it. We also know because the next verse specifies the believers. Verse 43 says, uh, verse 44 says, and all who believed were together. Makes a distinction between who it's talking about. Awe came upon every soul. What does that look like? Well, that looks like when a guy you know has been crippled since he was born and now he's running around telling everybody about Jesus, you notice that what the church is doing is visible. It's signs and wonders being done by the apostles and people are taking notice. And this sense of awe, or as the New Living Translation says, this deep sense of awe is among those, is among everyone who's witnessing this happen. Then toward the end, Verse 47, it says in there, they receive their food with glad and generous hearts, and then verse 47, praising God and having favor with all the people. When is the last time you heard someone describe the Christian church as having favor with all the people? 
It's been a while. <laughs> it's been a while since we've been described that way. But if you look at this, I mean, in this context, what, what problem would anybody have with what's going on here? I mean, if you're watching this unfold, what are you going to take issue with? This isn't a group of people that have been mobilized to go out and correct everyone and tell them what's wrong with them and how they're living the wrong way. I mean, I don't see anywhere in here where they correct all the people outside of the church and convince them to believe what they're believing. That, that's not really in here. This is people looking at what God is doing within the church and saying, hey, hey, what is that? Hey, what are you guys doing? Who can, who can have this? They say, anybody can have this. This is for everyone. In fact, toward the end of, later in the book of Acts, we're going to see that this, this extends beyond the Jews, which is like mind-blowing to them. This is available to everybody. Jesus made this accessible to everyone. So they had favor with all the people, and the end of that verse says, and the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Two important things there. Who's adding to their number? The Lord. This is God's work. This is not the apostles were such dynamic preachers that people came to saving faith in Jesus. This was God doing the work, and it, but look how much of it is happening. Day by day. You thought 3,120 was a lot. Every day there's people getting saved. I mean, this is overwhelming. This is amazing. The good news of Jesus is attractive. We don't have to dress it up to make it attractive to people. It's attractive on its own. And the truth is, when the church lets this sink in and lives the way that Jesus calls us to live, then we become attractive because people look at that and say, hey, that works. And it turns out that Jesus had some good ideas. And so what he told us to do and how he told us to live is right and it works. And if we do it the right way and we continue to look at him and focus on him, then we can be that together. And we can attract people to him. So what was the early church's response to this explosive growth? What did the early church look like? Well, it looked like Jesus. They put Jesus at the center, taught about the gospel and what they had in common, which was salvation. They were unified as a family. And they lived in a way that demonstrated how attractive the gospel is to those who are outside of their community. I hope this sounds at least a little bit familiar to you because it was not long ago we were talking about, um, we, we taught through a vision series and we talked about what we want our church to be identified by and the three words that we used were gospel, family, and mission. And if you look in this passage, it's what you see. The gospel is central, they live as a family, and they're focused on reaching people with that same good news. That's what the church is. We look at this passage and we think, this is the church. This is what it's supposed to look like. That's what we're declaring to each other. This is the church. This is what we're supposed to look like. Now, I wouldn't say this is prescriptive, meaning they're saying this is exactly what you have to do, but boy, is it a good model. And if we looked like that, I would not complain. I think that'd be pretty cool. It wasn't a a budget or a structure that accomplished that it, it, all of this. It was God empowering regular people to do extraordinary things because they had this incredible message of salvation and they were empowered by the Holy Spirit and God does amazing things. 
I want us to be that kind of church. I want us to be the kind of church that God uses as a resource to draw people to himself so that they can be taught about what it looks like to follow Jesus. They can be baptized into his family, and then we can just keep doing that over and over again. That's the cycle of discipleship we'd like to develop as a church and as a family. What I'd like to do this morning, based on this, is just invite you to do a couple of things. Maybe one, maybe all of these things. The first thing I would like to do is invite you into that type of community. We've talked about it quite a bit, about the way that we can live this out. It's not going to happen here. You notice that people weren't coming to Saving Faith because they were going to temple with these believers. They were watching the way they lived, and they were watching what was going on, and they said, I I want what you have. They didn't just bring people to church and they became saved. Their lives were turned upside down. They, they changed the way they lived and people were saved. So I want to invite you into community. I want to invite you to be in a life group, a small group of people committed to the same thing that say, let's, let's do this together. Let's live this out. And our life group commitment is the same thing. It's gospel, family, and mission. We want to be together as a family. We want to teach each other the truth of God's word. And then we want to go out on mission and do something about it. We want to tell people about the kingdom. And we want to love people the way Jesus loved them. That's what we want a life group to look like. We've been talking about it a lot. And maybe you're just really on the fence about it. And I would just say, I just want to make that invitation to you. Some of you have already signed up. And you're like, I've heard this every week. When are they going to start already? We're going to assign those initial life groups this week. So by the time you're back here next week, you will know, likely, who's in your life group. It's never too late to join. We'll never tell you, oh, you missed your opportunity. You can always join, but I would just invite you to be a part of this initial thing with us. Be a part of this community. I'd also like to invite you this morning to pray. These things that we see in this passage, fellowship, life group, prayer, teaching, But I'd I'd like to invite you to pray, and I've asked our prayer team and our overseers to be in the back during our worship time this morning. They're going to be back there to pray with you, not because they're super spiritual people or that they've got it all together. They're going to be back there to pray with you because sometimes it's just nice to be with someone from your family and pray together. Some of you have deep hurts this morning, or you have deep concerns, and you need someone to pray for you, and we would love to do that as members of your family. Some of you are listening to this this morning, you're like, man, I've been in the church a long time, and I have just learned and learned and learned, and I've never cleaned my room. I could say it in Greek, and I meet with my friends, and we talk about it all the time, but we just never did anything about it, and I just want God to do a work in me. I want to be filled with the Spirit, and I want to be used by God. I would just encourage you, get up and go to the back and pray with someone. Just share it. We're a family here. I'd also like to invite you to trust this morning. Some of you don't know Jesus. You're hearing this maybe for the first time, maybe for the hundredth time, but you don't know Jesus personally. And you're like, boy, I would like to be a part of that. And that sounds really good. I don't, I'm not sure if I completely understand it, but if I understand that Jesus loved me enough to die in my place, to absorb the wrath of God on my behalf so that I can stand before God blameless and then I can be a part of a community of people that have that in common, want to love each other and love other people and tell them about that, that sounds pretty awesome to me. Then I would just invite you 
during our time of worship, would you just get up and go to the back and tell someone, I want to know Jesus. Boy, we would love to hear that this morning, and we'd love to pray with you. I'm going to call the ushers this morning to take your connection cards, and Joe and the team are going to come to lead us in a time of worship. I would just ask, would you pray with me this morning? Father God, we're so grateful for who you are. We're so grateful for how you work. And we do not deserve what you offer. But we just give you all the praise and glory for inviting, you in, into, for inviting us into your family. We are just so grateful for that. And would we never forget that, Lord? Lord, I would just pray right now for this time of worship as we sing to you, as we sit before you, as we pray, Lord, would you be here now? Would you prompt us in our hearts? Lord, would you prompt us to follow you with everything in us? We thank you, we love you, we praise you. In the name of your precious son, Jesus, amen.